You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 6th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, Ukraine deflects the majority of Russian missiles aimed at vital infrastructure as Russian air bases are attacked. Is Kyiv gaining the upper hand in the skies? Iran's morality police are apparently being disbanded, but as the regime appears to bow to protesters' demands, will this be enough to halt the wave of protests? We'll check in with the EU Western Balkans summit, and then... We gotta get this together. I'm Georgia born. No, 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 Georgia bred. And when I die, I'll be Georgia dead. We'll hear more about the Georgia State runoff, with details of a new print product about to hit the market, a review of the day's papers and the latest business news. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. Ukraine has struck two military bases inside Russia using unmanned drones. Indonesia's parliament has approved a law banning sex outside marriage with a punishment of up to one year in jail. And Kirsty Alley, the Emmy-winning actress best known for her role on the TV series Cheers, has died aged 71. Do stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, the Ukrainian Air Force has announced that it shot down 60 of the over 70 missiles launched by Russia yesterday. Lada Roslicki is the founder of Black Trident, a defence and security consulting group in Ukraine. And she joins me on the line now. Lada, many thanks for for coming on the programme once again. What were the main targets of this latest missile strike? Well, once again, critical infrastructure, uh, electric stations, um, anything to make Ukrainians not have access to electricity seems to be their their main hits. Uh, but unfortunately, as usual, they're hitting residential areas and, um, and, and a bunch of people have been killed all over Ukraine as a result. Now, the energy situation was just getting back to normal. Things were being fixed. But I understand now there you're on emergency footing. Uh, yeah, and actually there was never really a normal because there were um, we were having continuous shutdowns of electricity and uh, unfortunately with no clear schedule. So that adds to the chaos and frustration if you could imagine not being able to plan when you're going to work because that means uh, if you have no electricity, no Wi-Fi, uh, no mobile internet and yesterday even uh, for some reason I had no access to an open line on my mobile so it's it's a ferocious uh, uh, mistral of, of attacks that that uh, has a lot of uh, tailwind even after the rockets hit or, or don't hit. Mm. Well don't hit is key because the damage was not nearly as bad as it could have been. Ukraine reportedly shot down most of the missiles. What a equipment is Kyiv using to do this? 
Well, the type of equipment that they're using is um, obviously what we have been receiving from the uh, Ukrainian allies. Uh, we definitely need to have more uh, long-range rockets that uh, could be hitting a little bit further and uh, targeting the the Russians on the territory where they're using to to hit Ukraine. So um, definitely more um, uh, is needed to to help us. The closing of the skies is still something that Ukraine is calling for, particularly over the uh, atomic nuclear plants and uh, chemical stations. Now, satellite images published by Der Spiegel last week showed 20 strategic bombers parked on the runway at the Engels Air Base in preparation for another strike on Russia. Now, the missile attack on Monday was launched hours after explosions were reported at two air bases, including Engels in central Russia. Uh, And in our headlines, we're reporting that these came from unmanned drones launched from within Ukraine. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have any information uh, publicly that would be able to confirm that these uh, drones were actually launched from Ukraine. Um, so it's very well possible. And in accordance with international humanitarian law, which is basically war law, Ukraine has a right to, or, or any country has a right to to strike military infrastructure when it is under attack. So whether Ukraine did it or or somebody internally that is displeased with the Kremlin's policy within Russia did it, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that lives were most certainly saved uh, by those two uh, uh, air air drums being being stricken in the last few days. I wonder why Russian air bases are so vulnerable to being photographed and attacked. I mean, aren't planes like the one we, the ones we saw, usually kept in hangars? Um, yes, they are, but also they have a very slow uh, movement. Uh, the way that they uh, take off and land is extremely slow. They are cumbersome as well. The technology that we're uh, receiving. Uh, the satellite technology is actually very high tech, so we have to remember that as well. And um, just the idea that uh, those uh, planes should be hidden uh, makes sense, but we're not dealing with a with a properly thinking enemy here whatsoever. So um, <laughs> it's good that that we see them. It's good that they're not there anymore. And uh, we just hope that that the international community will continue to pressure Russia to stop committing genocide against us. Do you think that the widespread missile attack yesterday could be retaliation for for those uh, airbase strikes? Or would Russia have needed much longer to to prepare such a, a barrage of missiles? Oh no, it's not a it's not they would have done it anyway. I mean, we're already in into a sort of um program, if you will, of uh, expecting the next Russian uh, uh, missile attacks. So it's every week. Um, sometimes we like we see a sliding from a Monday to a Tuesday to a Wednesday to a Thursday, then back to Monday. So this re- retaliation narrative, I don't pay very much attention to. And um, it, it, is, it was the same with the Kerch Bridge. Uh, that that was um, not a retaliation, what we experienced. It was just a continuation of Russia's uh, explicitly stated uh, intent to destroy Ukraine and Ukrainian nation as a as its as a in entirety. I wonder if you think that Ukraine is now gaining the upper hand in the air. 
Um, no, I don't think that Ukraine is getting the upper hand in the air. I think that the Ukrainian uh, defenders are starting to get a little bit more training and and getting better at it. You have to also keep in mind that most people who are fighting to support Ukraine are not professional uh, military. Many of these people, individuals, uh, had not even had a gun before this war started. So all international support we need to help Ukraine close the skies is not only desperately needed, but can be perceived uh, by the international legal community as an obligation, once again, to prevent the genocide uh, which which Russia is committing against us. Now, yesterday saw the EU ban on seaborne Russian oil shipments take effect alongside a G7 mechanism to cap the price of Russian crude. How have Ukrainians reacted to these supportive gestures from Europe? Well, a gesture is a gesture. So any type of support is is nice. Of course, some people were uh, disappointed with the price, uh, quite cynical about it. But um, the the uh, trade in grain and the uh, rockets, the Russian rockets that hit Moldova in the last couple of weeks, that causes more frustration uh, than than any frustration that we've seen from the uh, the. Uh, cargo for for energy uh, deals. It's a very delicate situation, of course, and in a cynical way, some uh, Ukrainians are starting to really um, maybe take pleasure in in seeing that Germany is understanding how big mistakes it made uh, in becoming and in, in allowing itself and the European Union to become so energy dependent on uh, on the Russian Federation. And I mean, I, I believe President uh, Zelensky has called the price cap weak uh, and said that it yeah. it's not serious. Yes, I mean, every single penny that goes to Russia is going to be spent to commit genocide against us. And this war has a very, I continue to, to assert that this war can spin out of control. And we see so many uh, crosswires now in Syria with the, uh, with the reactions in Iran, uh, with the Kurds. So the, the energy, nobody is going to freeze uh, in Europe because of uh, bans on on trading in energy sources with with Russia. People will die and freeze to death in Ukraine without the support. And if you take a look at Mariupol alone, uh, most apartments that are still standing have uh, are carrying a minus two degrees uh, Celsius temperature. And Kiev um, is is also it's extremely cold here, and we must stop supporting the aggressor, which is using terrorist organizations such as Wagner and uh, radicalized Muslims to to do their dirty work with, which is actually black matter uh, imperialism. It's very destructive. Uh, Lada, finally. Just from your sort of personal perspective, we've been speaking to you for for months now, and I can hear the strain in your voice. Can you tell us what your your day to day is feeling like at the moment? Ugh, it feels like surfing, but on um, really dirty water. So it's every day you wake up; it's exhausting um, <laughs> because there's no stability. Uh, the stability, uh, even as an example with bank machines, for the last week I had a hard time finding a bank machine that would either be working or would be uh, having money inside of it to give out. Um, internet, just that those communications, 
uh, the darkness outside it is a little bit um frightening to what because it gets dark here pretty early now it's winter and uh, just walking around with no uh, street lights even working it's it requires a lot of patience a lot of fortitude and a lot of determination to cooperate and and stick together to make sure that um justice uh, overcomes and that that we don't all get killed uh, on a happier note the social fabric is really something that is amazing now in the in the last few months just that support system between uh ukrainian citizens or, or not even or even volunteers that that are traveling here from uh, abroad it's just an amazing human feature just a wonderful wonderful thing to be experiencing in such a dreadful uh situation Lada Ruslicki, thank you very much indeed. We really appreciate you taking the time to speak to us. This is The Globalist on Monocle 24. Now, in Iran, the public prosecutor has announced that the morality police, whose detention of Maisa Amini, who died in custody, triggering months of protests, has been shut down. However, there's very little clarity on this, and it appears that three days of strike action are going ahead in the country. Well, I'm joined now by Nasreen Parvaz, who's a woman's rights activist and a torture survivor from Iran. Nasreen is also the author of A Prison Memoir, One Woman's Struggle in Iran. Nasreen, thanks for coming on Monocle 20. Uh, Top Iranian officials have repeatedly said that Tehran would not change the Islamic Republic's mandatory hijab policy, which requires women to dress modestly and wear headscarves, despite 11 weeks of protests against strict Islamic regulations. So what does this uh, announcement about the morality police actually mean? It means that... um, It it means it wasn't their... um, responsibility. It was the police uh, responsibility. And the lie bit of it, it says it was uh, launched and um, they shot it. It was launched by police and they shot it. It's not true. The people who are um, in the street, they um, abolished the um, morality police. In fact, since the protest has started, the Marathi police hasn't been around. They don't dare to patrol the streets and arrest women who no longer observe the mandatory hijab. So would you call this a victory for protesters? Yes, but now the protesters are not in the street for the freedom of, uh, uh, you know, what they want to wear. They they are in the street now to get rid of the regime. And the, this news is for the Western media to say, oh, everything is okay now. Uh, we give this uh, victory to the protesters and it will be okay. No, that's not true. Uh, the protesters want to get rid of the regime, uh, you know, because of the poverty, the lack of job, and many other things. What can you tell us about these strikes? You mean the three days strikes? Correct. Uh, 
yeah, it started from yesterday and it will um, carry on until tomorrow. And um, about 60 towns uh, list, uh, accepted this call and uh, joined this strike. And all the shops are closed. Um, but after, um, you know, when it's dark, about four o'clock, uh, people are out um, shouting, uh, I mean, chanting his slogans against the regime. And police is around. Um, yeah, uh, you know, during last uh, more than two months, uh, people are shot. People uh, in Kurdistan and Sistan, Balochistan, the regime used tank and um, tanks and rocket to um, kill people. And in um, Javan route in Kurdistan, they used gas. And um, yeah, the hundred um, people are uh, killed, Six, more than 60 children among them. And thousands of pe people are arrested. Schools are schools are um, uh, turned into prison. That shows how many uh, people are arrested. Now you've been in prison in Iran. What sort of conditions will people be experiencing? Torture and uh, rape. Uh, I wasn't subjected to rape, but I. So, little girls, I'm saying little because, um, like now, that um, underage uh, uh, women, I mean, girls and boys are raped now. And it, it was, it has been like these uh, last 43 years that the Islamic regime is in power. Yeah, they, for example, they used... Um, Okay, when I was uh, arrested, they mm, tortured me until I became uh, paralyzed. And they used bastinado. And uh, I remained paralyzed for about three weeks. A month later, my head was bashed against the wall. And as a result of that, I developed a brain tumor. The tumor was extracted in 2012 in London. I was in that interrogation center for six months. They killed many prisoners and they tortured them. They used that interrogation center for 20 years. But despite this, in 2003, when they turned it into the Ebrat Museum, they said they'd never used it. And it was only used by the Shah's regime. Nazreen, you and everyone else who dares to speak out about the regime are aware of the punishment that awaits. What drives you? Uh, love for people. I mean, we have to talk about it. We have to say what is going on. Otherwise, they just uh, continue with the crime. They're, um, com they, they're doing every day. And... As I said, they arrest, they, they killed many children, even under 10 years old. And girls uh, 13, 14 are arrested and they are 
tortured, they are um, raped. And, you know, about 16 underage girls uh, committed suicide after they were released um, from prison. Uh, you know, on October 18, 20-year-old Armita Abbasi was hospitalized after being raped repeatedly by security forces before her, uh, and she was taken to the hospital. Before her family would visit her, she was taken away again by security forces and her family don't know where she is. So we have to talk about it, but unfortunately the Western governments still keep the embassies open negotiated with the Islamic regime. It's outrageous, you know, it's, they shouldn't do that. They should um, close the embassies and investigate the, um, I mean, Iranian who work with the, for the regime in, who are living in Western governments. And unfortunately, the media as the media, they don't pay attention in, to what is going on in Iran. Nasreen, thank you. Just astonishing bravery. Nasreen Pavez, now still to come on the programme. It's full steam ahead in Georgia as voters head to the polls to decide the last seat in the US Senate. We got to get this together. I'm Georgia born. No, no, no. Georgia bred. And when I die, I'll be Georgia dead. We'll unpack how this neck-and-neck election might shape the next phase of Joe Biden's presidency. This is The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Leaders from the six countries of the Western Balkans will be getting together in Albania's capital, Tirana, in a couple of hours' time. And they'll be meeting representatives from all 27 EU member states. The occasion is the EU Western Balkans Summit, and for the first time, this gathering's actually being held in the Balkans. The idea is to usher the countries of the region along the path towards European Union membership, but it's been a particularly bumpy ride of late, as our man in the Balkans, Guy Delaunay, can explain. Guy, good morning to you. What's on the agenda for this meeting? 
Well, officially, Georgina, we've got, as you'd expect, things like Russia's invasion of Ukraine, security issues in the region, shared security issues with the European Union and the Western Balkans, uh, migration, both in terms of illegal migration along the so-called Balkan route and also the brain drain from Western Balkans countries to the EU, and the overall question of uh, integrating the countries of the Western Balkans with the European Union. But if you ask me, and I think if you ask quite a lot of people, the biggest question hanging over the whole affair is why, 19 years on from the so-called Thessaloniki Declaration, are the countries of the Western Balkans nowhere near European Union membership? Now, the Thessaloniki Declaration even basically said in 2003, we as the European Union want all of you countries in the Western Balkans with us in the EU as soon as humanly possible. 19 years on, Croatia has joined in 2013. Nobody else looks anywhere near. And you've got uh, an EU official saying before this summit, Tirana, the, the meeting in Tirana will unequivocally reconfirm the membership perspective for all and call for the acceleration of accession talks. Well, I've heard that before, and so have the leaders of the Western Balkans, and I'd be very surprised if it flies. And I mean, just getting everybody there is a challenge. Serbia only agreed to participate at the last minute. That's right. Only yesterday did President Aleksandr Vucic of Serbia actually say he would be in Tirana. He said at the end of the last last week that Serbia was going to boycott the whole shebang because he was very upset with the European Union because the EU had done nothing when the government in Kosovo appointed an ethnic Serb minister to its government without the permission of ethnic Serb MPs. This, of course, all being part of this ongoing dispute between Pristina and Belgrade. And uh, Mr Vucic was only talked round by not one, but two EU envoys who visited Belgrade in the succeeding days. So that relationship is looking a bit rocky at the moment. Uh, and, and there are other rocky moments as well. Well, because Serbia isn't the only country, is it, with qualms about its relationship with Brussels? I think the one which is particularly vexed, Georgina, is North Macedonia. And, the, you know, North Macedonia, just saying the name of the country um, brings up, you know, what the issues have been. So it was the Republic of Macedonia that had to change its name to North Macedonia to solve a long-running dispute with Greece, its neighbour. Uh, and the European Union said, look, once you do this, you'll open the door to accession talks with the EU. Uh, did that happen? No, it didn't, because its other neighbour, Bulgaria, started uh, playing silly games. And now the European Union has, in essence, given North Macedonia the nod to start talks, but only if it resolves its disputes with Bulgaria within those talks. So it's basically made bilateral disputes part of this wider accession process, which is which is hugely problematic. And as you can imagine, you know, North Macedonia is thinking, well, at any turn here, uh, we could be on the receiving end of a beggar thy neighbour move by Bulgaria. Uh, so that's North Macedonia. Montenegro hasn't had a functioning government since August. The EU has been chuntering away, saying how unhappy it is about that and how it can't make progress unless it's got a functioning government and constitutional court. Uh, Bosnia still hasn't got candidate status. Kosovo not recognised by five EU member states. I mean, you know, uh, to say you're going to accelerate the process, how are you going to do that? Well, how are you? What's the solution? <laughs> well, you know, I, I look at this over and over, and I've, I've met previous EU enlargement commissioners. I haven't met the, the, the current one, Oliver Varhe, but I have met uh, previous Euro European Union enlargement commissioners, and that is a title, the enlargement commissioner. And, you know, I've said to them, why don't you commit for heaven's sake? It's, it's not like you've actually made a really clear commitment to saying to the countries of the Western Balkans, 
look, we want you in the European Union and this is how we're going to make it happen. And you're great and we, we will be better for you joining. All the time the conversation seems to be, well, you're very naughty. And unless you stop being naughty and start being nice, um, you're not getting anywhere near our club. And well, I think the war in Ukraine has illustrated to people in the European Union that it is a matter of collective security, having the countries of the Western Balkans in the European Union. There are other issues of play, peace, security, economic prosperity, and they just haven't committed enough. And that's allowed bad actors Actors, as they would call them, such as China and Russia, plenty of room to make merry mischief within the Western Balkans. And we've seen China being increasingly active in all of the countries in the region. Russia, of course, having very close relationships in not just Serbia, but also Bosnia and Montenegro as well. Uh, it's been involved there. But the EU really has to show this commitment in, in word and deed and in money. Mm. If one looks back in history, are there precedents for this? I'm thinking particularly after World War II. Yes, sure. I mean, the, the one I always make to people is that, look, by the 1960s, you had Tokyo hosting the Olympic Games. You, you had uh, Germany hosting the Olympic Games in 1972. And that was, well, 27 years after the Second World War, you'd had both Germany and Japan firmly in the bosom of, you know, the international uh, you know, League of Friendly Nations or whatever you want to call it. But, you know, clearly seen as partners, allies, economic powerhouses. We're now 27 years on from from the end of the, the Balkan Wars in terms of the breakup of Yugoslavia. And, and look where we are. We're still sort of making these, these conversations about, well, you've got to make this reform before we allow you to creep forward this extra step. There wasn't this sort of pussyfooting after the Second World War, and, and, and Europe was a lot better, stronger, and more secure as a result. Uh, we seem to have slowed down in many respects. Guy, thank you very much indeed. That's Guy Delaunay there. And here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. Ukraine has struck two military bases hundreds of miles inside Russia using unmanned drones. The New York Times reports at least two planes were destroyed at one of the bases and several more were damaged. The drones were launched from Ukrainian territory. Indonesia's parliament has approved a law banning sex outside marriage with a punishment of up to one year in jail and will apply to locals and foreigners alike. The controversial new rule is part of several legal changes critics say undermine civil liberties. They include a ban on insulting the president or expressing views that counter state ideology. And Kirsty Alley, the Emmy-winning actress best known for her role on the TV series Cheers, has died of cancer, aged 71. She also starred in big-screen comedies, including the Look Who's Talking films, alongside John Travolta. He paid his respects in a social media post, calling his friendship with Kirsty the most special relationship he's ever had. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. <laughs> The political centre of the United States is shifting south, at least until later today. For the second time in as many election cycles, the residents of the US state of Georgia must decide who will represent them in the US Senate in a runoff election. Neither incumbent Democrat Raphael Warnock nor his Republican challenger Herschel Walker were able to achieve the required 50% threshold to win in last month's midterm elections. So, what's at stake? Journalist H.J. Mai went to find out. I'm in the Kirkwood neighbourhood of Atlanta, Georgia. It's a beautiful, sunny autumn day. People are laying in the park, others are playing basketball or tennis. 
but the majority is queuing up to vote in Tuesday's Senate runoff election. Earlier this year, the US Supreme Court struck down the constitutional right to abortion. The decision allowed states to impose restrictions or complete bans on abortion access. In Georgia, the state Supreme Court approved the controversial 2019 law that bans abortions after only six weeks, though legal challenges continue. The topic also shows the stark contrast between the two candidates. I'm a Christian. I believe in life. And I tell people this, Georgia is a state that respects life and I'll be a senator that protects life. The patient's room is too narrow and small and cramped a space for a woman, her doctor and the United States government. Abortion rights has become one of the top issues in this election cycle. Voters have also named the economy, rising crime and the future of democracy as other core issues. While Republicans underperformed across the country during last month's midterms, the party won all statewide offices in Georgia, leading to questions whether the Democratic victories on the federal level in 2020 was just a one-off. This runoff election could give an indication, says Andrew Gillespie an associated professor of political science at Atlanta's Emory University. Georgia has become more electorally competitive than, say, it was 20 years ago uh, when the Republicans shocked the state by uh, defeating an incumbent Democratic uh, governor, an incumbent Democratic senator, um, by uh, taking over uh, control in the state legislature. So uh, we're really kind of seeing uh, a change in Georgia politics where Republicans uh, are not necessarily winning elections by double-digit margins. Just like in many other southern U.S. states, the Democratic Party dominated Georgia politics during the early parts of the 20th century. But things started to change in the second half, and Republicans took full control of local and state politics in the mid-2000s. We see more people of color who have moved to the state who lean more Democratic than Republican. Um, we see uh, more liberal whites who have come to Georgia from other places because, you know, they're coming to work in the technology industry or they're coming to work in, in, in film and um, media. Um, and so they haven't necessarily been socialized with the same Republican values as people who were born in the state were. Uh, you know, they are making uh, this uh, this state more electorally competitive. This influx of new residents continues, especially in the Atlanta metro area. The state's capital and its surrounding area are home to more than 6 million people, making it the eighth largest metro area in the country. Some of the country's most recognizable companies are headquartered in the city, such as Coca-Cola, Delta Airlines and Home Depot. For Democrat Raphael Warnock to defend his Senate seat, he will have to win big in Atlanta and other urban areas across the state, such as Athens, Savannah or Columbus. But as he has shown in 2020, it's not impossible. And his opponent has run into a number of issues during the campaign. October surprises. A second woman claims Georgia Senate candidate Herschel Walker pressured her to have an abortion. Walker, who is a former NFL player and star running back at the University of Georgia, has denied those allegations. It's hard to tell whether those allegations had an impact on his performance in the general election last month. But the fact that roughly 200,000 voters cast a ballot for Republican Governor Brian Kemp, but not for Walker, is a concern, says Gillespie. I think the big question here is that in a race where we expect the margins to be tight, that type of attrition could spell the difference between winning um, and losing a race. And it is solely due to Walker's candidate quality. Walker, who received the endorsement of former President Donald Trump, is seeking public office for the first time. 
For Republican supporters, such as Emmanuel Hennes, Walker's shortcomings as a candidate are not enough to reconsider the vote. I won't say that his his, his background is is 100% perfect, but I, I don't think anyone's background is 100% perfect in this race. I think it really comes down to, you know, the, the values that you want your senator to have. Uh, I think that Herschel Walker is, is a candidate that at least will exemplify some Republican values. I mean, he's a pro-life candidate and he wants to lower deficits and he wants to lower taxes and he wants to help with with food and energy. And I think that's the core issues at the moment. Ernest is a college student and a member of the Georgia Association of College Republicans. He and other young conservatives who support Walker are in the minority based on exit polls from the general election. Those polls showed that young voters, aged 18 to 29, favored Democratic incumbent Warnock by a double-digit margin, 59 to 38%. People who are younger tend to vote Democrat and people who are older tend to vote conservative. So so it just seems the way it is and not really a, a, a real a big outlook of like, oh, this clearly shows that uh, that that, de- that Democrats are winning the new uh, future base of, of young Americans. Even though control of the U.S. Senate is not at stake this time around, early voting numbers indicate that Georgians show no sign of voting fatigue. More than one million people have already voted. Whether Georgia is slowly becoming a purple state remains to be seen. But the outcome of this runoff election could have significant implications for 2024 and beyond. That's H.J. Mai with that report on today's Senate runoff in Georgia. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. It is 7.37 in London, that's 8.37 in Milan. And let's continue now with today's newspapers. I'm joined now by Monocle's Europe editor, Ed Stocker, who is on the line from Milan. Good morning to you, Ed. Good morning, Georgina. Uh, Let's start with Le Monde, which is reporting on France, which is bidding to up its green energy. What does the paper say on this? Yes, indeed. Yeah, the front of Le Monde today has a picture of a couple of rather non-plus looking sheep uh, standing by some solar panels somewhere in a field in France. Of course, we all know the uh, challenge that Europe and the world is facing in terms of energy due to the ongoing war uh, in the Ukraine and the fact that countries are trying to find viable alternatives. That means some countries are restarting fossil fuel productions. Others are heading Uh, to new countries like here in Italy. They've been travelling to Algeria to look for new sources. And France is uh, really bidding to up its uh, green energy. Now, it it may come as a surprise that uh, actually France was the only country in the uh, 27-member European bloc not to to meet targets of around 23% of uh, energy coming from renewable. Um, And it's being fined, actually, 500 million euros by the European Union for this. So Macron... Uh, is trying to make a push uh, for renewables to be more, um, I guess, energy in- independent. Um, and as a result of this, he actually gave uh, an interview just a couple of days ago where he said he wanted France to be the first uh, country 
to be completely fossil fuel uh, independent by 2050. Uh, this article is looking at a bill uh, that is basically being debated in the National uh, Assembly at the moment that's looking to do things like uh, make it easier to uh, have renewable energy sites around France to really ramp up offshore uh, wind production. It, it already passed the Senate, which is right-leaning in November, uh, but now it has to face a very mixed National Assembly and also uh, plenty of resistance from the likes of Marine Le Pen and her Rassemblement National, which of course uh, is a, a big player in that National Assembly. So it, it's going to be hard and not a lot of time, in fact, around 30 hours has been scheduled for this debate uh, to try and push it through. And of course, one of the things they're looking at is this very delicate balance between the, the massive acceleration of renewable energies and the preservation of, of biodiversity. Exactly. And th there's quite a lot of opposition, actually, not just on the right, but also on the left uh, for sort of how this will be unrolled. Exactly like you say, Georgina, that what's deemed as, you know, being potentially a blight on the countryside uh, and uh, affecting, as you say, uh, biodiversity. What the government really needs to do is try and woo uh, the left, seeing as the right's probably going to be harder. But they're also sceptical as well, including the communists who seem to be rejecting it. Uh, some others on the left are saying, you know, is this just going to be basically playing into the hands of the free market and large corporations? So uh, the government coalition will be hoping it can use those 30 hours, which isn't much to basically play a convincing game. Mm. Let's move to El País now and Spain, which is looking to take, uh, well, to decentralise things, uh, making everything a little less Madrid-centric. Yeah, this is a story uh, that I picked from the front cover um, that's basically looking at how Seville's won uh, the bid to become the, the next future of the Spanish uh, Space Agency. Um, as you say, there's been a real bid to decentralise uh, new entities like this, new government entities that have been formed, and this will be new, uh, away from Madrid. And, and, and one sort of interesting aspect I picked up on was this idea of the areas that feel they've messed out as a result of this. Obviously, Seville's a big city in the south of Spain, in Andalusia, uh, and there were other places that were really hoping they'd get this bid, which obviously would bring uh, lots of attention and jobs uh, and money. I wrote a story a few issues ago f for Monocle about depopulation in rural Spain, the fact that there's been an exodus away from big parts of Spain uh, as people move towards si the cities. And a couple of complaints for the, the fact that this has gone to Seville have been from those areas, from Aragon and also from Leon, two areas that have been affected massively by depopulation uh, and you know, they put in their bids to have it here and they, they missed out. So although the government's looking to spread these entities around Spain, uh, there's a lot of areas that feeling they could have benefited more than perhaps Seville that is already uh, a large and, and developed city. But this is all part of a plan from the government to set up a, a, a space agency to be, be a player. It's part of its uh, national security strategy. But of course, in deciding with Seville, others get left behind. Mm.
I wonder if it's similar to what happened here in Britain, where certainly the media industry wanted to decentralise the BBC, sending a lot of its staff to Salford and to Manchester. And many, many people left because of that. Uh, do people feel the same way about moving to Seville, or is it a much more uh, exciting project than Salford? Well, the weather's pretty good in Seville. Uh, I think it's probably maybe a little more glamorous than Salford, but, I'm, you know, I wouldn't want to say that. Um, I think that Seville also, look, already has a very developed um, aerospace industry, so there's already lots of people already there. There's, you know, 152 companies around Andalusia and over 60 in Seville. And it's already proved that it can, um, I guess that it already has some spatial clout if you like it it hosted three years ago uh, the european space agency uh, and its 22 uh, member block there so uh, it won i think probably based on the fact that it has that industry already so it may not need to convince people uh, there already there already is a large aerospace industry there in fact uh, airbus also has a couple of plants there uh, and employs some three thousand people so it already has this industry there and yeah Given the nice weather and culture, I think it won't be too hard a slog to get people to move there. Now, let's have a look at La Republica. This is a story that's picked up across a number of publications, including The Guardian, and it's about Chinese police stations uh, abroad. Yes, so there's a Spanish organisation called Safeguard Defenders that back in September uh, published uh, basically a revelation, a report about these unofficial Chinese police stations that are around the world that are basically uh, being accused of essentially sort of coercing Chinese citizens, intimidating them, and in cases... Um, convincing them to return uh, home through this sort of unofficial means. Now, the report in September highlighted a number of countries and got those countries to open investigations. We're talking about the likes of Canada, Germany uh, and the Netherlands. And basically yesterday, this same organisation um, published a new report in which, in which it identified 48 additional stations uh, and the big reveal from this is that of those 48 uh, stations 11 are in italy that is the biggest number of all of them <clears throat> so as i said it, it it was picked up internationally the guardian ran a story and so i was expecting i guess there to be more reporting in italian media la repubblica uh, which we're looking at today does have a story on its front cover but uh, there's no comment from the Italian government. In fact, the, the Italian governments remain pretty quiet on this at the moment. Um, and also, in terms of the actual reporting, it's really just sort of cited other media, including uh, CNN. But it's, it's a sort of fascinating story, the fact that these, uh, these police stations seem to be operating overseas. China defends itself and says that they're basically uh, just service centres, basically bureaucratic places where Chinese citizens who may not have been able to get home because of coronavirus, for example, can do things like renew their driving licence. But this Spanish organisation is suggesting uh, it's doing other things, like I mentioned before, this intimidation and even convincing uh, people to go home. Italy has over 300,000 Chinese uh, living on its territory, uh, and these police stations uh, are apparently in, in places like right here in Milan, which makes sense as a very big Chinese population, and the likes of Rome uh, and Bolzano. Um, while other nations have, as I mentioned, open investigations and commented, it's kind of interesting that 
Italy is remaining silent. We'll have to see if the government of Giorgio Meloni uh, will decide, in the light of this latest re revelation, will decide to do something uh, and speak out publicly. Ed, thank you very much indeed. That was Ed Stocker speaking to us from Milan. And this is The Globalist. <laughs> Enhance the year to come and treat yourself or someone special with a Monocle subscription this festive season. Monocle offers something that you won't find elsewhere. A truly international perspective and unrivaled insights into business, culture, design and more. A present that lasts all year, bringing big ideas, stories of opportunity and plenty of optimism direct to your door. When you subscribe, you'll get a 10% discount in our shops and online, and of course, a free limited edition tote bag. As well as 10 issues of the magazine, you'll receive our annual specials and access to our exclusive digital travel guides. To round out our 15th anniversary year, for a limited time only, there's 15% off with code RADIO15. Time to have a quick look at business now with Helen Morrissey, who's Senior Pensions and Retirement Analyst at Hargreave Lansdowne. Good morning to you, Helen. Morning. We're having a look at Meta now, threatening to remove US content, US news content, that is. Tell us more. Yeah, so Meta has threatened to remove news content from Facebook. Now, this is because it's objecting to a new law that would give news organisations greater power to negotiate fees for content shared on Facebook. Now, a similar thing happened in Australia last year, which led to news on Facebook being briefly suspended. Now, Meta claims their platform um, provides increased traffic to struggling news outlets. Now, we know local news in particular really struggled during the pandemic. However, media companies are arguing that Meta actually generates huge sums of money from news articles being shared on the platform. So they want that extra, you know, wiggle room in negotiating fees. Now, as I say, when this happened in Australia last year, it did lead to a brief shutdown in Facebook news feeds in the country. But the decision was quickly reversed after Meta attracted wide ranging criticism. Um, so we will see what happens um, over in the US if something similar will happen again. Now, let's go to the man who seems to generate headlines almost constantly. This is Elon Musk. His medical firm, Neuralink, is being accused of welfare violations. Now, Neuralink is uh, his attempt to get paralysed people to walk again. That's correct, yes. So this um, this um, company is apparently under investigation for, as you say, potential welfare violations with a total of 1,500 animals dying in four years. Now, as you say, they are meant to be developing a brain implant to help paralyse people walk again, as well as helping with other neurological issues. Now, staff at Neuralink have made complaints that animal testing is being rushed and that this is causing needless suffering and death. So complaints say that, you know, Musk has increased pressure to accelerate the development of these things. And this has led to botched experiments that need to be repeated. Now, 
on one hand, there are people saying that, but then there are other people that say that the total number of animal deaths doesn't necessarily indicate that Neuralink is violating regulations or standard research practices. Some employees have actually said that the company treats animals quite well when you compare to other research facilities. Apparently, animals are given freedom to roam in what's been likened to a monkey Disneyland. Um, so there's certainly some conflicting stories um, going around about this. Now, are we about to see a big economic recovery in China? Because uh, we're hearing that uh, in Beijing, at least, uh, COVID restrictions are being eased. Yeah, well, here's hoping. So um, apparently, uh, you know, reports today show that people in Beijing have been allowed to enter supermarkets, offices, airports, etc., without having to show negative COVID tests. Now, this is a hope. This is a real hope that this is the latest in, you know, a, a mix of, of, of easing steps. You know, after last month's historic um, protests. So. You know, authorities have been loosening some of these you know, incredibly tough COVID curbs, as well as softening their tone on the threat of the virus. So there's hope here that there could be more of a, you know, a shift towards more normal life near three years into the pandemic. Um, now, this has sparked optimism among investors that, you know, um, the Chinese economy will regather strength and boost global growth. However, there are kind of concerns that you know, commuter traffic in these major cities, Beijing, etc., still remain at a fraction of previous levels because people still remain uh, very, very wary of catching the virus. Mm. Finally, let's move on to Australia, where the central bank today raised interest rates to a 10-year high. Yes, so as you say, they've raised interest rates again and they're stuck with its projection that more hikes are likely to be needed to cool inflation. So, you know, wrapping up its last meeting of the year, they lifted its cash rate by 25 basis points and it currently now stands at 3.1%. It's the eighth hike in as many months and total rate increases have been a hefty 300 basis points since May. Now, we're hoping for a bit of a break now. The central bank now has until at least February until its next meeting. So it can actually look at, you know, the the overall effect of its policy and to assess its impact. And we're expecting a quarterly inflation report in January, which we are still expecting to show consumer inflation running, you know, pretty high. But, you know, this has been kind of a pretty miserable time for Australians. You know, the rate hikes have, you know, added a lot onto their you know, their mortgage repayments, um, for instance, and we have seen home prices falling, you know, for several months um, in, in Australia as a result. Helen, thank you very much indeed. That's Helen Morrissey. And this is The Globalist on Monocle 24. Unheard, a political website aims to push back against the herd mentality with new and bold thinking and to provide a platform for otherwise unheard ideas, people and places. And now this will be taking tangible form with a new print publication, Edition Zero. Well, Sally Chatterton is Unheard's editor and she joins me now to discuss this. Uh, Sally, this seems an unusual decision in terms of timing. Uh, Why come out with a print publication now? Well, um, essentially, um, it's it's pretty straightforward, really. Um, Unheard has just opened its first uh, bricks-and-mortar property. We've moved into our headquarters in Westminster, new headquarters. 
and um, we'll be doing lots of things there. There'll be events and there's a cafe in the basement. But I wanted to remind people of the other building blocks that sort of created unheard, um, which are words and the power of words. Um, and uh, it, 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 there's sort of an ephemerality sometimes of uh, being on the internet. And we've created such an extraordinary, I think, obviously I would say that body of work at Unheard with these incredible names um, and thoughtful pieces. And sometimes it's frustrating that it feels like it just vanishes. So I wanted people to sort of have the opportunity to hold our work and to be reminded of you know, what sort of Unheard was actually built from. Um, but you know, also, it's funny, isn't it? Because I've come from print, that's sort of my heritage, and I worked in it for 20 years. And um, it, you sort of, it's difficult to get, get that ink off your fingers sometimes. There's a romance and an allure to, 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 to print. And, but also, you know, I thought it, sometimes you just want to linger over a piece, don't you? And you don't have the opportunity of doing that if, it, if you're looking at, um, of looking at these pieces on your, on your laptop or on your, on your, on your, your handheld device. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, 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 it just feels you know, I wanted something, something that was more lasting um, and tangible, basically, that w would go along with this incredible launch of our, of our, our building. And also, um, I wanted it to, to look beautiful as well. Um, and that was really an interesting journey because, I mean, it's been a long time since I've designed and been involved in anything in print. Um, and we, um, we commissioned um, uh, an award-winning designer to help us to do that and I think we've, we've created something that's sort of extraordinary looking um, and you know, hopefully quite a collective edition um, so that's sort of the thinking behind it really, um, it's slightly retro I suppose, people have tended to be going in the other direction don't they from print to, to online mm. but there was, there was there's something you know Tell us what would be. Tell us what so, would be in your first edition I see that you have some pretty controversial writers lined up um, controversial writers, I suppose. Um, what I wanted to do was create, um, was sort of show the breadth of what we, um, what we, uh, commission and publish on Unheard. So we've got, um, David Patrick Karakos, who's one of our, um, war reporters from the Eastern Front. Um, we've got Hadley Freeman, who, um, as you know, left The Guardian and she wrote her first piece, Post, um, the Guardian um, for us at the beginning of the year. Um, we've got Mary Gateskill, um, the incredible American writer about the year of the stem cell. We've got um, a wonderful piece by Helen Thompson, the Cambridge academic about um, oil in which she talks about Dallas. Um, who else have we got? We've got Ayan Hersi Ali writing uh, about fatwas and uh, Rushdie. We've got a beautiful dispatch um, from a food bank uh, in Cornwall. I say beautiful, I think it's pretty hard-hitting, really, but beautifully written um, about the struggles down there. Um, Dorian Linsky has written a great piece about hitchhikes. It's basically, I mean, you know, David Hockney on smoking, it's sort of, we sort of wanted to show, sort of, to surprise and delight, um, really, the, the, the reader with the sorts of pieces that we commission. Absolutely. Uh, and just very quickly before we go, you mentioned the launch of the mm. building. So when is this all kicking off? It's happened. It's happened now. Um, they're queuing around the block for the restaurant downstairs. But up, upstairs, um, the idea is that we um, we have a forum for... Because this is the thing, the whole point about Unheard is sort of um, 
opening opening minds rather than closing them. Mm. Um, and people's opinions can be so hard. And so the idea is that we get people into a room who have different opinions and we can actually talk about it and we can discuss it um, rather than fight on the internet, really. And that's sort of the idea. And so events are starting. Well, our, we've got our December programme at the moment and um, I think our January programme with all sorts of really interesting thinkers. Thank you very um, much, Sally. That's Sally Chatterton from Unheard. And that's all from today's programme. Thanks to our producers, uh, Laura Kramer, Emma Searle and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs, our researchers, Lillian Fawcett and Emily Sands, and our studio manager, Callum McLean, with editing assistance from Tamsin Howard. I'm Georgina Godwin. I'll be back on The Globalist at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. <laughs>